0: Welcome to NSN Daily. Chris Murray, I'm Brian Samudio, and Anthony Resnick driving us behind the scenes. Plenty to talk about today. Uh, We'll get into position previews and continue with that. Chris previewing uh, Nevada football. We'll get into the secondary. And uh, a cancellation. Uh, We saw this probably coming, and uh, it's already happened. There's already a game that's been canceled. But there's a weird wrinkle with this one, Chris, and we'll uh, dive into that. Murray's mailbag, always every single Wednesday. We'll have some uh, good questions today. And a Nevada speed record uh, set down in Southern Nevada. And maybe some viewers slash readers that uh, maybe need to slow down a little bit, Chris. You got a lot of responses on Twitter about this. But uh, is the World Series over? I mean, I, I, I yesterday, just for argument's sake, I said Rays in seven. The way the Dodgers played last night, I mean, it, this was nail-biting for the first few innings. And then after the Bellinger home run and a little toe tap, I'm like, this is that they're not going to lose this in four or five. They're going to, this thing's going to be over. I love ESPN.com interrupting my, interrupting my show every single day. It does this, but uh, Hey, it's 2020. What are you supposed to do? Um, tell me about your thoughts as a Dodger fan, just as a fan, not as a, you know, uh, as a broadcaster, as a writer, as a fan after game one.
1: Yeah. I mean, I don't think the series is over at all. Uh, you know, the Dodgers beat the Astros in game one in 2017 and, uh, you know, not fairly similar fashion, but it was a commanding win. And, you know, they ended up losing that series. So, uh, you know, it's just one game. I think Tyler glass now had some is- uh, issues controlling his pitches. You uh, you know, he gave up way too many walks and you can't do that to the Dodgers because they're going to get their share of hits. They're going to hit a home run or two every game. And if you've got traffic on the bases before that, because you're giving them free passes, you're going to be in trouble. Obviously, Clayton Kershaw had one of his better performances in the postseason. He was very strong. Uh, his slider was excellent. He got 19 swings and misses out of 38 pitches that the race swung at. So half the time they swung, they missed. Um the a career high for Clayton Kershaw in any game, regular season or postseason. So the Dodgers obviously played really well in this first game. And if they continue to play at their peak, they are going to win the series because they have the better depth on offense. Um, but, you know, they, they're probably not going to play an A game every single time they go out there. Mookie Betts was awesome. Uh, obviously, hit a home run, stole a couple bases, uh, really made a lot of great things happen with his legs, which shows you how versatile of a player he is. Um, but the Rays have Blake Snell, who was a Cy Young Award winner in the past. Uh, starting tonight's game. And then they have Charlie Morton in game three, who's, uh, you know, won a world series and, uh, you know, got a win in a game seven of a world series. So, um, you know, he's been a big game pitcher for his career. Uh, But yeah, I think it is pretty clear that if the Dodgers take good at bats, if they do what they're capable of doing on offense, it's going to put the Rays in a very difficult position because they just don't have the same kind of offensive firepower that the Dodgers are able to roll out there one through nine in their lineup.
0: When we previewed this series, we talked about the pressure all being on the Dodgers because they are the lineup. They are the team. This is one of the best lineups, offensively. And then you you throw in Kershaw, and Bueller, and some of the arms that are on this staff. This is one of the best baseball lineups that we've seen in Major League Baseball in the last. Feeling any pressure at all, Chris? I, this is a team of guys that are playing like they're a high school team on a winning streak. Uh, they look like they're having fun. I mean, Muncy uh, has been ridiculous. Chris Taylor, you could tell. I think there was a bet going on in the Dodgers club. Stolen base. Okay. They could give America a taco. You saw Chris Taylor trying to steal third months. He couldn't lay off a pitch. Taylor had that base stolen. He could have walked in and stolen that base. I don't think there's any pressure on this team at all. And that makes them even more dangerous.
1: Yeah, I think maybe the uh, NLCS helped them in that regard because they did have all of the pressure being down 2-0 and then 3-1, and they were able to pull through and execute and play some good games and get into the World Series. So maybe that just relieved a lot of pressure. Like if we were going to lose and not win this World Series this year, that would have been the moment to kind of crumble and let the pressure get to you. The fact that they were able to persevere and get through that, yeah, maybe that does loosen them up. Uh, And then, you know, winning game one and seeing Clayton Kershaw pitch as he did has to really Uh, You know, give everybody a nice sigh of relief because I know everybody wants to win this for Clayton because he has such a narrative of not being able to pitch in big games. Yeah, even though he has the most postseason games of, uh, you know, at least six innings and one run or less. Allowed. I mean, he's had some really, really good postseason games. I go back to that 2017 game one of the World Series. He pitched seven innings, struck out 11, gave up three hits, only gave up one run against the Astros team that was loaded and also was stealing signs. So, uh, you know, he's had these kind of performances before. And I think this just, it does put everybody at ease how difficult that last series was. And now they can just sit there and say, we're a historically great team. They outscored the opponent by an average of at least two runs per game in the regular seasons. First time that's been done in more than 100 years. They think I think in their mind, they're like, if we just go out and do what we're capable of doing, yeah. we're going to win more than you know four games before the, the Rays get to four games. So yeah, I, I do agree that maybe the pressure has been relieved just because of the path that they had to take to get to this moment.
0: Yeah, I, I really think this plays into Dave Roberts' hands because I there there have been people that have been very critical of a lot of his decisions, especially when it comes to pitching. He doesn't have to worry about a lot of decisions when you're hit, your guys are hitting the ball out of the ballpark, especially when Teller Glasnow puts – two or three guys on base. You cannot go to three ball counts with this team. And he did it multiple, multiple times because this is a team that is a free swinging team. But at the same time, they're very disciplined at the plate as well. These are smart hitters and it's a really unique group of guys. But uh, yeah, this is a a series that I, I don't think goes seven games now. Now that I've seen the two guys get into the ring and throw punches at each other for the first round. It's like, to me, it's like a fight. It's like a heavyweight fight. The, the Dodgers won that one by two points. That was a two-point round for the Dodgers, and, uh, and I, I'd be curious to see. Pitching decisions now, do you wait on Bueller? And I know when we take this show, we're still anticipating what, what's, who's going to be on the mound. Do you make it a bullpen game and save Walker Bueller for game three? I don't know, um, but uh, I, I, I really have no confidence right now in the Rays because their best players have not stepped up when uh, the Dodgers players – have um you know who has stepped up and i I appreciate this and i hope that franchises would step up more like this is dodger stadium is you know it's it's unfortunately has a reputation of being a place where fans show up late and leave early but right now it's turned into a drive-in they the dodgers have actually put up two 60 foot tall screens in their parking lot it's 75 bucks and you can have up to six people in a car. When you're away from the car, you got to have your mask on. And they're having to watch parties. Why shouldn't they, Chris? I mean, you would do that. If you could take wife and the kids, spend 75 bucks, go watch a game. They have concessions. It'd be cool.
1: Yeah, know it's a cool idea. They've been doing that for the entire playoffs and actually get – emails about it. Uh, they were giving away free season tickets if you signed up to their uh, newsletter. So uh, they got my email address now and I'm getting, hopefully I get the free season tickets. I'm probably not going to get that. But um, yeah, it's a cool idea, right? I mean, the, uh, Dodger Stadium parking lot is gigantic. Uh, it's a gigantic place so you can obviously crash a lot of cars in there and if everybody stays in their car with family members then you know they can be as safe as possible you know turn on the radio dial uh, listen to the game like it's an old drive-through like the 1940s or 1950s so it has been a cool idea and it looks like it's been very very popular as well I mean there's been a ton of cars from the pictures I've seen uh, you know you get a big hit you start honking your horn so uh, kind of an old school way to watch the game you know it's kind of been cool to see Uh, I think they're allowing somewhere around 12,000 fans in the ballpark as well. I think that that does add to the atmosphere for the players. Uh, From the reporters who are out there, I've read that, you know, it does sound really loud. I mean, it's the stadium's only maybe a a quarter capacity. But, uh, you know, you go out and you hit a big home run and you hear somebody cheer for you. That's a little bit different than doing it and hearing just this fake noise in the background. So it's been nice to see in these last couple of rounds of playoffs in uh, this series Um, you know, that they've been able to have some fans in there and give it a little bit more of an atmosphere that makes it a little bit more meaningful for the players and, uh, you know, maybe helps swing the momentum a little bit back and forth as well if you can get your crowd into it for a certain section of the game.
0: So your team is there now. My team was there 10 years ago. Um, I recall in 2010, 2012, 2014, a lot of brand new Giants gear walking around, Mm -hmm. brand new spanking batting uh, practice caps and jerseys oh I'm a Hunter Pence fan I always have been an Aubrey Huff fan I saw a dude yesterday and if you watch the show thank you very much but I saw you and Rayleighs in Northwest Reno yesterday wearing a Bellinger jersey and I didn't say anything but the tag was still on it man you didn't even (laughs) cut the tag off of it walking around with a brand new how do you feel about the new fan base because that's what's going to happen the Niners have a new fan base that have come in after they got to the Super Bowl under cap. The new fan base where it's new money. How do you feel about that?
1: I mean, I'm cool with it. I mean, everybody can get on the bandwagon, get on the bandwagon. Uh, obviously, they haven't taken the same journey. Like, yeah. think think right. the last 15 years and all of the pain that you go through as a fan of a team, uh, you know, I think back to uh, Matt Stairs hitting home runs off Jonathan Brown. Boston in 2010 2011 when the phillies went to the world series instead of the dodgers i think of hanley ramirez getting a fastball uh to the ribs against joe kelly breaking his ribs in game one of the nlcs against the cardinals in a series the dodgers may have won because hanley was hitting so well but he was you know very ineffective because he had just broken some ribs and tried to play through it i think of clayton kershaw giving up a couple of home runs to the washington nationals last year i think of the astro series uh, which still stings me because we now know that Houston was cheating. Uh, I think of the Red Sox series and an 18 inning game. Like you go through all of those, those painful memories. Yeah. To be able to have that victory at the end of the tunnel. So, um, you know, maybe they haven't earned, I guess, the right to celebrate quite as much if they're a new fan, but uh, you know, I love baseball and anybody who gets into the game, even if it's just because the team that they're new to is playing well, uh, you know, is great. Obviously we've seen, TV ratings across the landscape in sports really spiked this year. Um, So, you know, the more interest you can have in the game. And I think, you know, the the expanded playoffs, I think, has brought more people into the fold. Um, You know, I think that's a good thing for the sport for sure. But uh, it's definitely a little different if you've been supporting a team for your entire life and you've had all of those lows. And then you get that exhilarating high. So, uh, you know, if you've got a brand-new Bellinger jersey, that's cool. But, yeah, it might not maybe mean quite as much to you if they do end up winning it just because of the travel uh, road that the Dodgers have had to go through to potentially win this year? I mean,
0: 1988. I mean, I was thinking about that last night watching it and going, man, where was I in 88 and thinking that it took that long and, and I mean, I'm, I'm not crowning them yet, but it's, you know, it's, it's looking like this is going to be the new King of baseball. Um, but recalling 2010, when the Giants finally won it for the first time in San Francisco and having family that, that are from the city, Literally in the city. I'm not talking Bay Area. In the city, and and they had never won it, and what it meant, and you know, wishing that you know uh, relatives were still alive to see it that were season ticket holders. So I do. I, I I think it's cool supporting the sport either way, especially baseball. Baseball needs new blood. Baseball needs new fans. But I agree. I think that there's a certain sort of you've earned your stripes. You've earned your scars of the 2002 world series where dusty left Russ Ortiz in too long against the angels and the giants fall there, you know, in losing those things, even this year in the middle of a pandemic stuck at home since mid-March and the giants blow it over the weekend against the Padres. But then again, 2010, the Padres choked and the giants got to go. So it happens. And uh, you know, to the diehard fan, to the Padre fan, to the Minnesota Vikings fan, to the Buffalo Bills fan, sir, I commend you for being faithful. <laughs> to our team coming up next here on nsn daily we'll delve into nevada football and our position previews done by mr murray how about the secondary there's some experience there but also have they been battle tested and a cancellation in the mount west when it comes to football that's next got just a few days away nevada football going to be playing chris if i told you back in may that we would be getting ready for a football game here on the 24th You probably thought I was crazy.
1: Like May actually looked pretty good. And then June and July, it kind of turned. So it has been a roller coaster just to get to this moment. I, I think when they made the announcement that they were going to play in the spring, I think nobody thought that they would have actually ended up playing a, a shortened fall season. So uh, we finally reached the end of this road. I know it's very meaningful for the players to be able to get, get this opportunity to play. And, uh, you know, hopefully they can navigate it by, you know, playing as many games as possible. I think it's unrealistic, as we've already seen one cancellation, um, that you're going to play an entire full season without some hiccups. But uh, you know, at least these guys will be able to get out there and, and show all the hard work that they'd put in over the summer.
0: Yeah, we'll get to that cancellation, which has definitely has a twist to it here in just a second. Uh, Chris was in our morning meeting pointing out some numbers that that I hadn't seen yet that, that are really, really weird. Uh, position previews continue by Chris on our website, nevadasportsnet.com. Uh, getting into the secondary, and when you talk secondary in the Mountain West and going back to the WAC in the Big West, secondary in this conference has never been a strong point if you're a top recruited corner you're usually ending up in the sec or the big 12 Uh, but uh, this secondary has some experience to it
1: yeah i mean if to me 2019 kind of felt just like a tryout season they tried out a ton of guys in the secondary to see who would actually end up sticking so you go into this season now you have eight defensive backs who have started games at the college level which is a huge number but only three of them have started more than six games. So the group as a whole does have experience, um, but it did struggle last year. I mean, they gave up uh, 251 yards per game last season, 99th out of 130 FBS teams. Uh, they gave up the fifth most passing touchdowns allowed in the nation. So it definitely went through some, uh, some issues last season, and the hope is that they'll be better off for it. Obviously, you saw some major coaching changes. The cornerbacks coach, the safeties coach, was both fired after the season. So Jay Dorval clearly wasn't happy with the unit. Uh, And now they're going to be playing more of a bump and run kind of coverage on the outside. They're going to be a lot more physical with their cornerbacks. They don't want to give up those easy pass completions. And maybe that brings in the risk of giving up some deep throws, but uh, you know, it's a group that does have some experience. So you could kind of say, okay, well, they should be better next uh, this year. But I guess when is the last time that a Nevada football fan was very comfortable or confident in their secondary? It just really has never been the case. That's always kind of been the Achilles heel of the defense. And I think, You know, this group might be about average in the Mountain West. I think if it is able to make the step to get there, uh, then it's making improvement from where it was last year. But there are some good players. Tyson Williams is one of my favorite players on the Wolfpack to watch. I mean, he's a five foot nine safety uh, who came to Nevada as a running back slash wide receiver, and he switched over to defense. And I thought he was very, very good last year. He led Nevada in tackles. Uh, You obviously have Austin Arnold coming back this year as a starting safety. Now he has to sit out this game against Wyoming because of the fight against UNLV that he was suspended as a result of. Uh, you have EJ Muhammad, who's going to play a nickel position. He started the last two years. You have Burdell Robbins, uh, who has a lot of experience. So, um, you know, I think that the unit will be average uh, at least. Um, can it be above average, I guess, is the big question as Nevada goes into the season.
0: The names that you bring up are all guys that have had to prove themselves. All guys that have faced challenges. Burdell Robbins with with a very tough upbringing in, in Southern California. Um, Tyson Williams coming out of Dothan Alabama man nobody comes out of Dothan Alabama but Malik Reed with the Denver Broncos and Tyson Williams who at five nine, says I can play safety at the division one level these are guys that have been that have a chip on their shoulder and rightly so and these are guys that want to prove themselves this is the secondary that really hasn't been outstanding since 2010 since the big year since that best season ever And this is a secondary that, and we say it a lot. There's, I mean, when you're zero and zero, there's a lot of optimism, but there's some guys out there, you know, they've got some depth. And I think there are going to be positions won and lost. You know, if if there's a name on this list that you think might be the dark horse to come out and steal a nickel position, or maybe sneak into a couple of a couple of starts, is there a name that you have?
1: Uh, True freshman A.J. King is a guy that Brian Ward, the defensive coordinator, highlighted. He wasn't really highly recruited. He had a couple of offers, but he's really stepped in and, uh, you know, has earned a number two spot as a true freshman. And Nevada's initial depth chart has them playing three cornerbacks as starters. We kind of assumed it would be a 4-3-3 defense. Uh, they put out a four-two-five defense with with that nickel position being EJ Muhammad. So um, I would not be shocked to see him eventually earn a starting job at some point this year. He's probably the next man up if there is an injury or if there is a positive COVID case. So uh, there is a lot of good young talent. It is a smaller group. You have a lot of guys who are five-nine, and that's not necessarily ideal when you go against the wide receivers in this league, which are phenomenal. That's probably the best position in the Mountain West this year are those wide receivers. But you know they go up against the six-foot-four Elijah Cooks and the six-foot-two Romeo Dubs and a six foot six, Cole Turner every single day in practice. So I think that does help them get prepared for the season. Um, But, you know, it's a solid group. I just wonder uh, as well with the coaching changes and the defensive shift and not having an ideal off season, you know, how comfortable are they playing this defense right now? They've obviously had a little bit of extra time with the season starting late, but that's going to be the big question for this defense is, are they fully grasped on to what Brian Ward wants them to do defensively? Because the back seven, uh, it's a little bit iffy. I think the defensive line will be good, but that back seven is going to have to play really well, um, you know, for this defense to take a step forward from where it was last season.
0: I like the bump and run idea. I like the aggressive idea. I, I'm granted. You're right. You're going to have guys get burned deep. It's going to happen. Um, I'm not going to eat you at lunch for that. I mean, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, if you're going to screw up, screw up big, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, I think I'm from being at games and hearing the groans out of fans when, A quarterback steps back, looks to his right, and there's a receiver open by seven yards, and he hasn't moved. And all he does is just dunk to him. And hearing fans kind of groan, and I feel the same way, where it's like, you know, challenge this guy. Make him make a play. Make him make a throw. But, uh, you know, I I think the first time I see a 90-yard touchdown, I'll probably regret uh, my words. Um, When it comes to the Mountain West, as you said, there is a cancellation that's already happened. This happened yesterday. New Mexico and Colorado State. Talking with reporters in Albuquerque, they are not optimistic, the ones that I have spoke to, at all about having literally a football season because of how that county is handling COVID-19 and their protocol. But this game is at Colorado State, and it's been canceled. Um, that kind of surprised me. That was a bit of a curveball to me.
1: Yeah, that was surprising, too. I just kind of had assumed that it was going to be played at New Mexico, and I went and looked at the schedule as well. And Uh, New Mexico is basically being told uh, by their uh, government that they're not allowed to play a road football game. Now, they have had some issues within the program. They had nine positive tests uh, among players and then an additional positive among a coach. So they had to shut down on Thursday all football operations, and that hasn't been restarted yet. So they might not have been prepared just because of some internal issues. But uh, New Mexico has been exceptionally uh, strict with their policies, and it's been reflected in the numbers. They're actually one of the better states in terms of not having a ton of cases right now. They're uh, uh, you know, w- Nevada has way more cases than New Mexico as a state uh, by about, uh, you know, times six. Um, so th- the breakout that they're claiming is really not that high if you look in Nevada's standard. So the average, uh, you know, cases per 100,000 in the county that Albuquerque sits is about 1,300. And then you look at Washoe County, it's about 2,500. So we have almost twice the amount of cases per 100,000 people. Um, but New Mexico as governor has just been very strict and not Uh, You know, allowing this thing to try and spread, and that's been a good thing for their overall numbers, but it's certainly restricted what the Lobos Athletics has been able to do, and Nevada is scheduled to play a game at New Mexico uh, 23 days from today. So if New Mexico is not being allowed to play a road game right now, I don't think the odds of them being allowed to host a game against the Wolfpack uh, in three weeks is going to be very likely either. So, um, you know, Nevada might end up losing a game from its schedule as a result, but um, certainly not a great sign You'd eat the week one games and the Mountain West has already had a cancellation.
0: Yeah, it's it's unfortunate because you just feel for these student athletes on both sides. I mean, you, Colorado State, these guys were stoked because they were going to be able to host a football game this weekend and now they lose it. Uh, and unfortunately, you can't just call somebody up and go, hey, uh, Colorado Western or Colorado Tech, I'm you know, making schools up. Um, you know, can you come on over and play a football game this weekend? It's not like you're hosting, you know, you know, a a pickup basketball game or something like that. Fortunately, it doesn't work that way. And with the Mountain West making their decision as late as they did, it's eight games in eight weeks. And if you can't do it, you can't do it. I was texting with a coach yesterday and I said, well, November 14th, does that look like it's going to be a buy? And he said, I'm not sure. We don't know what's going to happen. It's, it's all still kind of up in the air, but uh, New Mexico and Colorado state in Fort Collins canceled this weekend because of the COVID situation in Albuquerque. Figure that one out 2020. Thanks very much. Coming up next here on NSN daily, we'll dip into Murray's mailbag. Your questions, Chris's answers coming up next. Rolling on here on your Wednesday, every Wednesday, we open up Murray's mailbag. Uh, Chris Murray will actually very kindly open up uh, his Twitter account at by Chris Murray on Sundays and uh, answer your questions Chris, this one was a doozy. This was over 5,000 words.
1: Yeah, a lot of questions in this one. Uh, you know, some very, very good ones. I think people are getting excited with sports coming back. So we'll probably be in that five to 6,000 word range moving forward. It was a little bit lower during the uh, the pandemic situation because there wasn't as much going on. But, yeah, we're back up to full capacity on the middle.
0: Yeah, we had a good one yesterday talking about if we could Frankenstein together a Wolfpack basketball player, who would it be? And I actually got some responses on Twitter for bringing up Demetrios Momrinos and Paul Culbertson. so uh, thanks mm-hmm. thanks for folks uh looking at some old school there let's start off with uh Brendan Schneider maybe the first time I've seen at uh, B schneider 775 in the mailbag in less than two weeks the battle for Nevada will be played on Nevada Day for the first time ever would you be in favor of having this game play on or near Nevada Day every single year it seems like people either are overly passionate about this is when it should be played or nobody cares
1: uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm in the, no, I don't really care, uh, bin, but I do think that it would be interesting to play it on Nevada Day weekend for a couple of weeks because there's been a major attendance issue with this game. Uh, the last game played in this series at UNLV, the lowest attended game in the Battle for the Fremont Camden since 1983. Uh, the last year when it was played here in Reno was the lowest attendance at Mackey Stadium since 1989, and that 1989 game was actually a sellout before the expansion of the stadium. So people are not going out to this game nearly as much. Um, and I wonder if that's because of the date. It's obviously so late in the season, the weather tends to not be quite as good. Uh, and just given the state of the programs the last few years, hasn't been maybe as much on the line yeah. as typical beyond the canon, which is obviously a huge, huge deal. Um, so I think maybe moving it up earlier in the season, a uh, Nevada Day weekend, having that kind of as your, your sticking point, uh, you know, kind of maybe the kickoff to when usually conference play will begin, maybe a couple weeks into conference play. Maybe that gets people rejuvenated and maybe check, take a look. So um, I don't think that's going to be the end result. Both Nevada and UNLV have both continued to request that this game be played on the last weekend of the regular season, which is your typical rivalry weekend. And I understand that. If both of your teams were good, if they were yeah. a West Division championship, um, that would be such an amazing event to be able to go to a battle for the Fremont Cannon game. Winner goes to the Mountain West Championship game. The programs just have not been in that position. So a lot of times this game at the end of the season is just like, yeah, it's a big deal because it's for the Canon. But beyond that, there's not a lot of implications in terms of who's going to win the Mountain West. So, um, you know, I think it will stay there, but I wouldn't be opposed to moving it around a little bit, just seeing if you can boost up that attendance.
0: When he got moved to the rivalry week, because that was the big thing, it's going to be rivalry weekend at the end of the year. And that became kind of the sexy sort of idea. I liked it. I'm like, hey, this is cool. I'm some end of the year, this is going to be the what if it decides if somebody goes to a bowl game? What if it decides? a division championship. The problem is we've seen five and seven against six and six or, or whatever at the end of the year, depending on who's played Hawaii or not. It's just, it, it hasn't had the juice. So I don't mind it being on Halloween. I don't mind it being on there. It doesn't, that does not, it's not a make or break for me. I want it to be at least three to four weeks into the season though. I want to see two teams that have gone out and hit some people a few times. I want to see these two teams that are really starting to maybe peak in their offenses and defenses. But more importantly, I want it to be between two teams that are good. I want – UNLV needs to get better at football. As much as people, you know, oh, screw the Rebels, whatever, it's a healthy rivalry and it's good for the conference. It's good for Nevada, for UNLV, to be good at things. You don't want to beat down a team that's going to finish 2-10 and – you know, you, you want to beat a Rebels basketball team that goes 25 and 12, or something like you, Numbers aside, you want them to be good. So that, mm. that's my, my thought on that. Um, moving on in the mailbag to Chris Bowline at CD Bowline. Thank you very much. Most underrated developments of the last 20 years for Wolfpack Athletics. The, the question goes on, but he's basically talking about facilities and, and developments at the university. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I don't know that I had a great answer for this, but I thought the most underrated development is probably Nevada simply just getting into the Mountain West. I think people don't really understand how important that was not only for Nevada, but really for Western football. Uh, that came back in 2010 when that decision was made, shortly after Utah left uh, and uh, BYU also decided to go independent. And I remember talking with Commissioner Craig Thompson a couple of years ago for a feature I was doing on him, and he told me the story of that day. They uh, flew into Philadelphia. Uh, they were on the 46th floor of the Comcast building there, uh, and they had a three-hour meeting to try and keep uh, BYU in the conference. And BYU eventually at the end just said, you know, we're leaving, we're not gonna be here. And literally they got on a charter plane and they called the Mountain West Board of Directors and they just did a verbal vote. Uh, Should we just add Nevada and Fresno State to keep this conference alive? And everyone was like, yeah, just do it. And then they call Nevada and they give them the okay, do you wanna come into our conference? So it's not like there was this huge plan or this push to get Nevada in. It was basically, you know, our conference is gonna fall apart or the WAC is gonna fall apart. Let's go take two, uh, two or three WAC teams. And try and make sure they fall apart before we fall apart. So, Adam's decision to leave the WAC and go to the Mountain West basically saved one conference and killed another conference. You look at the WAC, they have like Dixie State and Chicago State and Bakersfield and just these Texas, r-
0: San Antonio.
1: Yeah. Um, so, I think that was such a huge decision that Nevada made. And it was almost made on a whim from the Mountain West perspective that, you know, I'm sure they had thought about which teams they would go after, but just how that all came together in like a three day period. Um, was kind of crazy for me. And I don't think people understand that if Nevada doesn't get that call, they're not playing football in the FBS right now. They're probably playing in the FCS, uh, you know, in the big sky or something like that.
0: Yeah, that's the one thing if people ask me about, you know, making it to the Mountain West and, and getting into that. I'm like, look at Idaho, look at New Mexico State. That's where Nevada would be, is they would be in the big sky, they'd be in the Sun Belt, or they'd be independent. You know, that was a development that literally changed the face of college athletics and really dramatically changed the direction of this university. When it comes to underappreciated uh, developments, I'm gonna go with the women's athletics complex, which uh, having the Hicks also, Hicks and softball complex, tennis, uh, some track and field out there. I really think that they, there was an opportunity that was maybe missed out there and maybe ge- geography-wise it couldn't have been done, but I really think that they could they should have put, if you could physically put it on the footprint, women's soccer and a track out there so you could host events because Nevada can't host track and field events legally mm-hmm. because of just the rules with the track going underneath and behind behind the bleachers. But the development of women's athletics out there, I'd love to see women's offices being out there, women's coaches offices being out there, make it more independent and show women's athletics that you matter on this campus. This is a swim team that's top 25 pretty much every single year, and they have to do it in a non-Olympic pool that they have to bounce around student schedules with. You know, it, it, it sometimes feels like an afterthought. Women's soccer have to play on a football field. Uh, you know, So I, I think it's been great, but I don't think enough has been done. And the one thing that has not happened, that should have happened, is a field house. There's no football field house. And uh, that's all I'll say about that. Um, How about Cody Fajardo jumping into the mailbag? At Cody Fajardo 17, good buddy of ours, uh, having a great career in the CFL. What's the Murray household celebration if the Dodgers win the World Series? And this is coming from an Angels fan
1: yeah well he doesn't have much to celebrate these days oh. uh, player in baseball but nothing else um so i actually paired this with a question from another nevada football alum didrick holmes asked me a question about 19 crimes wine which is like a snoop dog uh brand wine so i mentioned i wrote a little bit about that and then i answered cody's question and i said i'd buy 300 bottles of that 19 crimes wine and just bathe in it so that's what amari stottemeyer used to do or still does do he bathes in red wine because he thinks it invigorates his body so Uh, I'll just buy a bunch of red wine. I'll take a bath in it. I'll get a nice bottle of champagne. Pop that thing. Um, So that 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 might be a fun celebration. I don't know exactly how I'm going to feel, honestly. Like I would hope I don't cry over a sporting event. Like I have a, a, you know, I'm a grown adult now, and I've got kids, and uh, you know, you wouldn't think that you'd be that much uh, emotionally moved simply by a sporting event. But it has been a long time coming. Uh, I don't remember the last time the Dodgers won the World Series. I would have been five years old at the time, so. Um, you know, I was really, really happy when the Lakers won uh, earlier this month. I'm a big Lakers fan as well, but the Dodgers are at a different level for me, and I've been through a lot of pain with them. So uh, we'll see. Hopefully, I get to answer that question next week exactly how I celebrated and how I felt.
0: Bathing in wine. Uh, <laughs> wrapping it up with Scott the Merce at Scott the Merce. Thank you, Scott, for your question. Most favorite and least favorite Halloween candy.
1: Do you have a favorite?
0: You know, I, I probably don't have a favorite. If I have a favorite candy, it's probably the Cadbury Cream Eggs at Easter. Okay. Um, you know, I, that's probably my favorite. But I'm not a big sweet tooth guy.
1: Yeah, uh, Snickers is number one for me. Definitely, when the kids go and get all their candy, uh, you kind of sneak in there and you take away the Snickers. But everybody loves Snickers, so everybody's trying to steal those. Uh, and then you go Baby Ruth uh, and Almond Joy, and then bottle caps. Bottle caps kind of a throwback. I really like the root beer bottle caps as well. Least favorite, candy corn. Not a big fan of candy corn. Uh, you know, sometimes it's loose as well. You, you shouldn't eat any Halloween candy that's loose. And then Three Musketeers bars and Milky Way bars. Uh, not a big fan of, personally. Also like the Twix. Um, and Butterfinger's pretty good, too. So I'm, I'm a big sweets guy. I eat way too much ice cream and candy and things of that uh, nature. But definitely Snickers is at the top of my list when it comes to Halloween candy.
0: Yeah, you know, for me, that's the Circus Peanuts. You remember those or whatever i was never a big fan of that but yeah butterfinger is great and yeah candy corn it's kind of like i gotta be in the mood and yeah. and you know i've seen people that actually eat it by the color it's like the, they snip off the white and then they eat the orange and then they eat the the bottom of it and i'm, I'm like that's just weird but
1: do okay. you ever have like people giving you like apples or toothbrushes or oh,
0: i grew up in the country i mean i grew up in the sticks <laughs> and, and you would get so much random crap in your bag sometimes by the end of the night you come back and you go where did i get that yeah. And it, i mean people and i mean they're being so thoughtful too i mean i lived in a great place in El Dorado county it was a great place to grow up it's one of those places that you know when you were in high school you couldn't wait to get out and the second you left you couldn't wait to go home i mean it reminds me so much of some of rural nevada it reminds me of gardnerville it reminds me of of fallon it reminds me of fernley you know you know it's just certain parts of it um but I recall it was a lot of retired folks and uh, you'd have little old ladies making cookies and my mom would go, oh, no, that's for Mrs. Thompson. You can eat that. You know, <laughs> just, you didn't live in a place where, oh, you need to screen the candy. And I grew up in yeah. a time when you didn't have to worry about a razor blade and a Snickers bar. And that's you know more innocent time. But uh, yeah, yeah, it's a uh, we at toothbrushes. We did have a dentist on the street <laughs> we did have a dentist. We had a CHP officer who always gave out the little silver badges and little okay. stickers, cool. stuff like that, so it was fun. It was fun. I yep. wanna
1: say if you do live out in Sparks though, so there's a road called Old Waverly. Uh, it's okay. the coolest road in Sparks right uh, on top of Red Hawk. They got some amazing houses out there. They're all like million dollar houses. They give out full candy bars. So if you're in the Sparks area and you feel comfortable going out uh, you know, with the kids, uh, just head up Old Waverly, a lot of nice people. It's like two uh, streets down from our old house. And they'll give you the, the full the full deal, the full Snickers, uh, you know, the full Twix, uh, you know, a whole like handful of Reese's peanut butter cups. So wow. um, we're going to stay in South Reno. But if you do go in Sparks, Old Waverly is the place to go if you want the full bars.
0: Very cool. Chris has always got the insight, not even a question. And he gives you, gives you the insight. Murray's mailbag opens up every single Sunday on Twitter. Follow Chris at by Chris Murray. You can see the full uh, mailbag on our website, Nevada Sportsnet. Com. Coming up next we're on NSN Daily, a land speed record set in the Silver State. We'll check that out. Coming up next. So a world record for speed on, uh, achieved on a highway. A public road was uh, achieved uh, earlier this month, and uh, they did it pretty much under the radar. Apparently it happened uh, outside of Vegas, between uh, Vegas and Pahrump. This happened October 10th, and they're just now releasing this. Uh, the SSC North America Tuatara, I believe is how it's pronounced, a hypercar. It's a production vehicle though at 316 miles an hour. It reached the highest speed ever at 331, but they averaged two runs. That's how they did the land speed record back in the day when I covered it up at, uh, at BlackRock, Chris. 331 miles an hour in a production vehicle? Are you kidding me?
1: Yeah, so 1,750 horsepower. I don't know anything about cars. I assume that's a lot.
0: Yeah, uh, I mean, like, yes.
1: What's the average car have horsepower?
0: Your SUV probably has 170 horsepower.
1: Oh, so ten horsepower. times that. Jeez, Louise. My
0: Infinity, when I had an Infinity, that had about 320
1: horsepower, and that yeah, r- cool. really cool that it was done in Nevada, uh, State Route 160 between Las Vegas and Parump, as you mentioned, peaked at 331.15 miles per hour. Uh, I did. You you tipped me off on the story. that We're going to talk about it today. I put it on our website it's got like the most page views of any story in like the last five months. Yeah. Uh, people are really interested in it. And I asked them on Twitter, you know, what's the fastest you've ever gone in a car? And one person said 200, which is pretty fast. Um, I think the highest I've ever gone is about a hundred uh, between here and Las Vegas. And I just kind of wanted to see if like my car would blow up or what would happen when I hit <laughs> triple digits. I know my parents old Suburban, the car would just hit like a governor and would stop. Uh, it wouldn't stop. I guess it would It would just slow you down automatically. If it just stopped, that'd be pretty, pretty bad. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, I can't imagine going 331 miles an hour. That's, that's crazy to me. Uh, they had a professional driver, obviously the car is available for purchase. only $1.6 million if you're interested in it. Uh, it's really cool looking. Um, but yeah, that, that, that was a crazy number. How's the, the fastest you've ever gone. If you want to publicly say.
0: Oh, 115, maybe somewhere yeah. in there. Uh, that was in the infinity and I was doing it at night. It was between Reno and Vegas, when I was driving that a lot, moving back from Las Vegas to Reno, thank God for that. Um, And it had these halogen headlights so you could see forever. And I knew there was nobody on the highway, but I look back on how stupid that was because I thought, (laughs) oh, I'll be able to see an animal because I'll I'll be able to see its eyes. Uh, Yeah. A rabbit runs out in front of you at 331 miles an hour. Bye-bye bunny. I mean, that's, that's crazy. Uh, do you think that our viewers were uh, honest with you when it comes to uh, them saying how fast they were going?
1: Probably, but they all had the same answer. It was, I went this fast because I was young and stupid. Yeah. And then I would never do it again. So it's just a lot of guys probably in their twenties, uh, you know, just want to see how fast our car can go. And, uh, you know, somebody said they did it in Washoe Valley. Somebody said they did it on Pyramid out by the lake. Uh, a lot of people between here and Vegas, one person between here and Winnemucca. So, um, you know, everybody was definitely in the triple figures. There were, you know, some some people said they've done like the NASCAR experience yeah. deals where you're going, you know, up to a couple hundred miles per hour. Somebody said they did it on the German autobahn. So, uh, you know, it was kind of fun just to get some feedback on how fast people have gone and, and you know the memories. But it certainly was the, uh, you know, I was dumb when I did this and I would never go this fast again. Uh, we should point out, as you mentioned, that this is the fastest on a public road on uh, via a production car. Uh, you know, the actual record just for any cars is uh, above 700 miles per hour, which now that's crazy to me. Um, basically based off like a Jets uh, design. And they've been working a decade to get it this high. Um, so it, a ton of work has gone into it. It's just really cool that you can go out and actually buy this car if you wanted to.
0: I covered that event in the mid-90s on the Black Rock Desert. It was the thrust SSC team out of Britain that uh, drove, it broke, it broke the speed, uh, the, uh, the sound barrier with a car. Andy Green was a British Royal Air Force pilot who drove this thing. And it literally was two Mercedes-Benz jet engines strapped to a rocket basically. And he made two <laughs> runs within an hour. And it was absolutely amazing. One of the craziest things I've ever covered, maybe best in my career. And it happened uh, when I was like 22, 23 years old. So uh, really, really cool. Coming up next here on NSN Daily, how expensive is it to play Little League these days? T-Mobile is making a big push about this. We're we'll look into this, that's next. Well, if you've been watching the World Series, T-Mobile, which is a huge sponsor, um, has been running a number of ads and it caught my attention because they're doing it so much about s- helping families afford to play Little League. Uh, Chris, I didn't know that Little League had gotten so expensive uh, just some basic research, it can cost up to 180 bucks for a kid to play Little League. When I played Little League, you had a t-shirt that had a number on it. And it was sponsored by, you know, Sloppy Joe's Pizza or something like that. Um, I, I didn't know it could be that expensive.
1: Yeah, it's definitely becoming more expensive. And then you have the gear associated with it as well. I mean, youth sports has become this gigantic business. You're talking about $17 billion industry in kid sports, which is bigger than the NFL. Um, and the income inequality that we've seen in the country has certainly uh, declined the number of people who are participating in youth sports. Now, I think at the Little League level, it's not too, too bad. Uh, you know, you can get, um, you know, like donors to pay for your stuff. And sometimes the league can provide, you know, obviously bats and, and maybe even gloves. But certainly when you get up to the AAU or the travel ball circuit, you're talking about, you know, anywhere between four to $10,000 a year to play. So, um, you know, just getting these athletes in the door who might come from lower socioeconomic households. Is a bit of an issue, and then certainly if they want to get to the next level and get recruited, that's a gigantic, gigantic uh, financial lift, and that, that's one of the reasons that we have seen a decline in just youth uh, participation in sports, which is you know bad because you know not not only making friends and things like that, but just being physically fit. Yeah. Uh, playing sports is a huge, huge deal.
0: Yeah, I, I was disappointed to see that, and I, I understand when you get to uh, when I played American Legion ball, I know it was expensive, and the travel teams are very, very expensive. My sister. That helped her get recruited to play college softball um, but the little League level that that I mean there there shouldn't be any kids that don't get a chance to play little League if you haven't seen the information littleleague.org league.org slash call up grant program it's sponsored by t-Mobile how they're trying to help uh, help families that, that you know maybe are having a tough time fronting the cost and, and let these kids let these kids play ball for crying out loud coming up next year on NSN daily we'll have some final thoughts as we wrap things up Wrapping things up, Chris, final 30 seconds. Game two, Dodgers,
1: Rays, who you got? Uh, I'll take the Rays. If the Dodgers win this one, I feel like the series will more or less be over because they have Walker Bueller ready for game three. So I'll say the Rays even it up. Obviously, I'm not rooting for that. But I do think the series is going to go, you know, six games or so. So uh, hopefully I'm wrong. But I'll go Rays winning by a score of six to four.
0: Six to four. You're, uh, if If anybody holds this Dodgers offense to four runs in a single game, from here on out, I, I say that's that's a uh, her, a Herculean effort by a pitching staff. They're they're just that good. For Anthony Resnick and Chris Murray and Brian Samudio, thanks for being with us. We'll see you tomorrow.